The book of Hebrews we've been studying, and especially Hebrews chapter 11, we have been looking at the life of men and women who lived great lives of faith. They were not perfect people. In fact, they at sometimes had downright ugly aspects of life. They dealt with all kinds of hardships and issues. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to see these highlights of these men and women who were ordinary in many, many ways just like us, who did extraordinary things because of an extraordinary God. And we have been seeing and highlighting and commending these men and women of the faith. But as we finish up Hebrews chapter 11 and turn the page, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12, where we'll find ourselves this morning, we see that the writer is speaking to now us. And he's speaking to us and he's saying, in light of all that I've taught you about these awesome men and women of the faith who did great things for God, in light of the difficulties and the uh, turbulent circumstances that they had to deal with every step of the way, in light of all that they've done and all they've been a part of, now he turns it and he says, what will you do? What kind of life of faith are you writing? What kind of race, as he'll use as the metaphor in our passage today, what type of race are you running See, it's really of no value for us to walk away and say, those are really, really great and awesome people. I wish I could be like them. I don't think I'll ever be like them. And so we kind of put them on the bookshelves like biographies that we've read of great people, never thinking that because of the Holy Spirit who's living in and through us, that same Holy Spirit that was living through them, that is at work in us, can enable us right where we're at today in the Fox Valley area in the 21st century, to do awesome things for God, to live like these men and women did, trusting and obeying and living each and every day by faith. But to do that, we have to respond to the question the writer of Hebrews is asking, what will your response be? Well, he says, if you want to live like those men and women did, if you want to find victory, if you want to find success in this walk of faith, then you need to do some things. Your mind needs to be focused on some things. And in fact, your focus needs to be on someone. And if we don't have that formula, if you will, we're going to fail. And he gives us the formula starting in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, in light of all that I've just shared with you in chapter 11, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider this Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father God, I ask a simple prayer uh, this morning. In light of all that we've experienced, the singing the baptisms, a ministry highlight, the celebrating of what you're doing at our campuses, that you would change us anew this morning. Through this very well-known passage, I pray that we might be able to apply one new truth 
that we can take into this next step, this next chapter of our walk in faith. So empower us by your Holy Spirit to do so. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever noticed that when someone finds success in something, that you gravitate to wanting to find out how they did it? Maybe it's someone in business, and maybe you're a business person, and you've seen an entrepreneur just do awesome things. As a person in the food business, I'm always blown away when I go into Portillo's to think that Dick Portillo started his whole enterprise in a little trailer that had a hose hooked up to it in a parking lot, and now has created a multi-multi-million dollar conglomerate. That's pretty amazing, you know, and and if I had a chance as a guy that, that loves food and a guy that involves uh, serving food, I would want to ask the question of Dick, how did you do it? What was the secret to your success? We do it with money management. Someone goes from being in the middle class to somehow striking it rich through savvy business deals or savvy money uh, plans, and we'll ask the question, how did you do it? How did you uh, amass such riches? We do it in the way of fitness and weight loss where someone is losing weight or someone has hit a fitness goal or maybe is running the marathon. We've got five or six individuals from our campus running the Chicago Marathon for World Vision. And I'm blown away at watching them run. How, how, how are you going to even be able to run 26.2 miles? How are you going to do it? What was the secret to your success. And we could go on and on. There's a lot of different ways we can do it. In fact, if you were to go onto the Amazon webpage and go to their bookstore uh, division, you could find more than 6,000 titles under the heading, The Secret of Success. And they are all manner of things leadership, and even the church. There's conferences that pastors can go to to find out how uh, megachurch pastors have built uh, the churches and, and the keys and the ideas and the thoughts and the, the plans that they put together to make it happen. And, and there are always, you know, six keys to this or seven steps to that or five ways to this. And we are enamored with wanting to know how someone who is like us has found success. Well, I want you to know that the writer of Hebrews writes this letter to a group of people that he wants to be successful. Now, not successful in the way of fitness or weight loss or or entrepreneurship or business or you name it. Not Not the worldly success, but he wants them to find success from a biblical standpoint. Find success in the Christian life, which is much, much different And he's writing to a group of people that, quite frankly, are really feeling ostracized, downtrodden. As we learn in Hebrews chapter 10, these men and women have lost property because of their faith. They've lost friendships and family relationships because of their faith. They've lost um, the ability to be free. Some are in prison because of their faith. Some have been beaten and knocked down. And as a result, what the writer of Hebrews knows of his audience is that as they gather to hear the letter being written to them or being read to them, he knows that there's a lot of them who just plainly want to give up, who want to throw away any confidence they have in Christ and his work in the world and just give up 
and just be like the rest of the world. And so the writer of Hebrews says over and over again, don't give up on your hope, don't give up on your confidence. Following and trusting and living for Christ is worth it all. And you may not feel it right now, but you will see it as things move forward. And what he does is in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, let me give you some examples of people who lived for God and God did great things through them. But now he wants us to ask the question, what are we going to do? Now notice that he gives us a formula. He gives us a formula. He says, I want you to be successful in your race. I want you to be successful in your Christian walk. And the way that you're going to be able to do it is, and I've broken it down into four things. Four ways that you can be successful. And it's not a man telling us this, God through his Holy Spirit is telling us his formula for success. Number one, the first thing we need to do is if we want to find success in this race called the Christian life, we need to first of all learn from the best. We need to learn from the best. We are told in the beginning of the passage that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, we know that what he's specifically talking about is the litany of individuals that we've just spent the last summer going through looking at their lives, the Abels and the uh, Enochs and the Noahs and the Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs and Joseph and Moses and Joshua, Rahab, the people of Israel, David, Barak, Gideon, Samson, and and then uh, countless nameless people who did great things for God in victory, and who remained steadfast in even defeat. And so he says, man, you can look to all of these people, and you can learn something from them. Now, a couple things that we need to be aware of. Number one, and we need to be really careful of this, because it's common in religion today, is to take these saints of old and revere them, and elevate them to a place almost competing with God. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to revere or to worship, or to pray to the saints of old. And maybe you came from a background that did that. I just want to say very lovingly that that's nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible do we have a singular example of someone praying to another person for help or need or anything, that that is a human concoction. And it may be useful for some, but the Bible speaks nothing about it. So this great cloud of witnesses is witnessing, they're proclaiming something, but it isn't something of worship or adore me. In fact, these individuals would say over and over again, there's only one person who deserves worship and adulation and praise and glory, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so we have this great cloud of witnesses, and they're there to serve as our example. In fact, the writer uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in one of his letters that the Old Testament was written to serve for us as an example, an example of both good and example of bad. And the Bible's clear. The Bible isn't just Pollyanna about things. It doesn't just share the good stuff. Quite frankly, it shares some real ugly stuff, as we've learned in our studies of the Old Testament. And yet, we can learn greatly from these individuals because they are the best. But I want you to notice that they are witnesses. They're talking. And so does that mean we commune with them? Does that mean we are supposed to reach out and talk with them? Well, no. What it's speaking of is that their lives are speaking volumes to us. 
And it's a reminder that sometimes, as one theologian said, that some of the best sermons are seen, not heard. And it's a reminder for us, as we look at these great men and women, these heroes of the faith, that it is far more important not for us just to preach the right things, but in fact to live them out. And it begs the question this morning, as we run our race, are people hearing us talk, or are they watching how we walk? I will tell you, you will not have an audience very long in your preaching about Christ and his kingdom and his work if you are not living it out, and that's true for me as well. We call that hypocrisy. And so these men and women, not being hypocrites, lived out their faith, did the hard work, and we need to learn from them. And we do that a lot. We want to learn from the best. My son Noah, he's not here today, but uh, he is advancing quite rapidly in his uh, pursuit of basketball, and, and the coaches told him that they wanted to take him to a next level and to get some more practice in and training, and so Noah came to me and said, Dad, uh, I, I want to get some more training, I want to work at this, I really think basketball is something I, I could really uh, help my team with, and, and I need more help, and I said, well, son, I'm here for you, he says, that's not what I was thinking. He said, Dad, you know, he said, you're about as good as I am at your best. And I was like, what are you talking about? Let's go out and play. And then I lost 11 to 3. But but I wasn't good enough. And that's okay. I was an average basketball player in high school, and I'm even less of an average basketball player now. And and in a lot of ways, Noah has has elevated or uh, found success far more than what, what I have. And so we went on a search, and and we found a a coach for him, a guy that would train him, and he was a a young man from our area who had won a couple state championships, who had gone off to play NCAA basketball for a large university, and then he now is playing professional ball in Europe. This guy has the pedigree. He knows what it is to be a champion. He knows what it is to take his craft to the next level. And Noah now has been working with him. And, and we do that a lot, right? We, we want the best and the brightest to be teaching us. We, we want to know that the person that is going to teach us has found victory, where maybe right now we have found defeat. This is why we turn to the saints, Not because they're God, not because they're greater than us in some weird spiritual way, but that they have found victory where maybe right now we have found defeat. And we need to learn from the best. And that means we need to devour the Old Testament and understand what the Old Testament has to say because in it are stories of great life change that we can grow from. We need to learn from the best. Number two, we need to recognize that we need to learn from the best and we need to let nothing slow us down. Let nothing slow us down. The writer takes the metaphor of running to a now a new level. So he says, okay, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The idea here is you've entered the arena and these men and women who have gone before us are cheering us on. And they're cheering us on to live the life of faith that they lived. And now he says, as you run this race... Let nothing slow you down. Now notice what he says in the text. He breaks it down in two ways. There are two things that can slow you down. He says, let us also lay aside every weight, number one, and number two, and sin which clings so closely. 
And so what we need to recognize is if we're going to run a race, and if you've ever watched a, a, a marathon or a race take place, you know that they, they strip down to the bare minimum, right? They don't want any encumbrances. They're not wearing baggy clothes. Everything is close and tight to their bodies so that nothing will keep them from running this race with endurance, You've never seen in uh, the Chicago or Boston or New York, New York Marathon uh, any of those uh, Kenyan guys put on a parka and, and uh, rain boots to run in the marathon. Why? Because that's going to slow them down. It's going to slow them down. And there are things in our life that are going to slow us down in our Christian walk. Now, I want to be really careful that the writer says that these things aren't sin. He separates. He says there are things that will hinder, and then there's sin that so easily entangles. There's a separation in the text of those two things. And so I want you to know there are good things in your life. There are noble things in your life that can slow you down in your race for Christ. And maybe you don't even know it right now. Now the church, and I mean the church, big church, is really, really good at telling you what those bad things are, even though the Bible doesn't. You see, the church has a list of sins that are outside of what the Bible calls sins. And we're really, really good at telling people what those good things are that are bad for you. And that's legalistic on our part, because in some ways, these are good, right, and noble things, and they are to be enjoyed and to be pursued, but there are times where we elevate those good things to take a place in our life that starts to slow us down from the more important things. Now, this is where you as good Christians, and with your thinking caps on, need to look at your own life. Instead of hearing a list of things from me, but in your own life, you need to ask the question, what are those things that are slowing me down? What are those good things that God's given me for my enjoyment, for my good, that I've allowed to creep into my life that have added weight and added drag, if you will, into my ability to run? Now, let me just give you an example from my life. I have become more and more convinced that I am tethered to my smartphone. I just, I, 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 and, and there's a lot of good things. Smart, smartphones are good. They've, they've got a lot of value to them. But I find myself um, connected to it in ways that, that I don't think is altogether right and good. And no one's, no one's convicted me of this. No one has said, you know, geez, Tim, you're on your phone too much. But I've sensed over and over again this thing that I use for work and ministry and everything else, man, it goes everywhere with me. And I find myself being tempted at all times to be looking at it. And then I came across this picture in an article that I was reading. So go ahead and throw this, this slide up there of the picture. It says, what if we began to treat our Bible the way we treat our cell phones? Now, right away, just real quick, your cell phone is not bad. There's nothing inherently sinful in a phone that has transistors and, and all of those different things on it, right? There's nothing wrong with it. But it is when we start asking these questions. What if we started to carry our Bible around like we carried our cell phone? What if we turned back to go get it if we forgot it? Boy, that one hit me. I can't live without my cell phone. And if I don't care how late I am, if I don't have my cell phone, it's like my security blanket, I will go back and I will find it. 
If I lose my cell phone, I lose my mind. But a lot of us, when we lose our Bibles, it's no real problem. We're ready to have our cell phone in case of emergency, but are we ready to use God's word in that way? And the one that really got me after the second one was, do we spend an hour on it or more using it each and every day? I just want you to know that screen time, according to every study, every study that has done screen time by Americans um, averages between six and eight hours. That's TV, movies, computer, um, uh, cell phones. What kind of church might we be if a fraction of that time was dedicated to, the, to God and his word? That is an issue, if you will, that I have to, as a pastor, get beyond and so you have to ask the question, what is the good thing in your life that you find yourself uh, maybe more enamored with than even God and his word and his promises? The writer of Hebrews says, man, you got to let it all out. you got to get rid of it because it's slowing you down. The second thing is sin. And sin's a little easier. The Bible tells us what is sin. Immorality and, and idolatry and uh, the sins of the mind and the sins of the mouth and the sins of, uh, of the heart and the sins of the hands. We know those sins. The Bible lists them in the Old Testament as the Ten Commandments. The New Testament uh, substantiates them and, and uh, brings more of it out in meaning and understanding and, and tells us the depths of which these sins go to, especially through the teachings of Jesus. But some of us are running the race and we're being entangled by sin. Now, the reason why the writer uses this phrase is that the course that the runner would run in was not a paved roadway back in the day. Remember, this is first century time. And so these were paths and these were um, courses that were uh, through all manner of environments and settings. And it wasn't uncommon, according to secular writing, for a marathon runner to get caught up in vines and branches that were uh, edging the way, if you will. And so they would be running, and because they were running as moving quickly, they little did they know that a weed or a branch or a, or a vine would be along the way, and they would be tripped up. And that tripping up would cause injury. It would cause the race to come to a standstill. And I want you to know that there are good and noble things that will slow you down, but listen, sin, sin stops you in your track spiritually. And it trips you up and it brings injury. And we have scrapes and bumps and bruises, not because we wear an extra layer of clothes when we run, which slows us down, but because we have been tripped up by sin. And as a result, our race has stopped even for a moment. And because of that, we have to ask the question this morning, what sins are, or am I susceptible to being tripped up by? And we need to recognize that. And so when we see the road before us, we are able to steer clear of those things. That's where Jesus told us to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lord, would you go before me and push away all of the uh, of the vines and the weeds and the things that, that I am most susceptible to because I don't want to be tripped. I don't want to be knocked down by the sin and not be able to run the race that's been marked out for me. Now, I want you to be aware of something that the writer says. We can't let anything slow us down. 
But I want you to notice very quickly that the race that is marked out for us is a race that's marked out by God himself. And some of us don't like the race or the course we're on. And we see the other runners in the race and they're running on flat ground or maybe even downhill. And we're like, man, their times are so much better because their course or the track that they're running is a lot easier. And there's truth to that. Some of us have been given um, easy races to run. No obstacles, no, no real inherent difficulties. And then there are others. There are others that it just seems like obstacle upon obstacle. Difficulty upon difficulty. And I want you to recognize this morning that it is God who sets the race. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But never forget that God is the one who sets the race and we need him to show us the way we need to go. Now, we're on this race, we're on this track, and we need to recognize this morning that we gotta leave everything on the track. Have you ever noticed that at the end of the marathon race, that they're not sitting there and walking around being like, I could, walk, I could run another two, three miles. No, they've expended all that they have. They are exhausted. I want you to notice in the text, it doesn't say let us walk with perseverance. Let us saunter through with perseverance. Let us, if you will, lollygag or coast. He says run. This word run is the most vigorous of Greek words in the way of doing anything with our bodies. This is it. You're going to give it your all. And so maybe today you don't find yourself out of breath. Maybe today you don't find yourself sweating spiritually. Well, then there's something wrong. You're not running the race as hard as you can. You've got to be pushed a little harder. And here's the thing. That's why the writer of Hebrews uses these great men and women of the faith. He wants us to be paced by them. So if you're sitting there saying, man, my life of faith is pretty easy, well then let us examine Noah for a moment. 120 years he built an ark and it had never rained. Let's imagine the faith of Abraham who God had tested to see if he would sacrifice his son before he gave a, a sacrificial lamb for the sacrifice. Imagine the children of Israel who walked around the city of Jericho for seven days before the walls would come tumbling down. We need to recognize, we need to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Not walk, not dilly-dally, but run. And that idea of perseverance is that this is not going to be easy. The Christian life is going to be difficult. And it's going to involve grit and tenacity. It's going to cause you at times to want to give up. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So how do we not give up? How do we not give in? Notice what he tells us to do, and I'll give this point and we'll close. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who before him, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do we not give up? The writer of Hebrews says the formula is to look to Jesus. And he says Jesus is the founder 
of our faith. That is literally, he's the source of it. He's the source of your faith. He is the nutrients that your faith needs to grow and have life. He is the sustainer of your faith. And I want you to again use the marathon illustration. As they're running along the marathon, at different checkpoints, there will be tables and people handing out water to them. It would be in completely foolishness for the marathon runner to run right by and not get water. Why? Because without water, you cannot run very long. And so the source of all that that individual needs is found in that uh, water or those nutrients that they are given that is in that cup as they run by. And they know I've got to get this. Well, I want you to know as a Christian, if you are not in this marathon getting the nutrients and the sustenance from Jesus, you will disqualify yourself because you'll quit and give up. And that's why so many people call themselves Christians, never deeply connected to Christ. They're involved in some different things, religiously, if you will, but never committing to Christ. And as a result, they they kind of shrivel up and they walk away because they're not connected to the source. They're not drinking, if you will, Jesus in. He's the perfecter. That means whatever you have that is shortcomings in your life, whatever issues or struggles you have, Jesus will, will by his grace and by his mercy, sustain you and perfect you so that you will finish the race. As a true child of God, listen, one thing you should never wonder about is if you'll finish the race. Because if you're a true child of his... You will. God has promised. He who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. It is God's race with you. And so you don't have to wonder, am I going to finish it? God will bring you to a place of completion. Well, where is that place of completion? That place of completion is the right hand of the throne of God. And so we run to be in the presence of God. The people in Hebrews 11 ran to be in the presence of God. And one day as we run our race, as the apostle Paul said, as we finish the race, what will await for us is the crown of righteousness where we will stand before God and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what we're running to. And I will tell you, when we get there, It'll be worth every step of the marathon. It'll be worth every cramp. It'll be worth every stomach ache. It'll be worth every hardship that we experience in this race when we look into the face of Jesus. And we'll spend eternity with him where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more sin. Where the old things are gone and the new are brought into reality. But until then, we look to Jesus. Now, notice a couple of things about Jesus very quickly. Number one, his race wasn't easy. His race wasn't easy. He endured hostility. He endured suffering. And so there's going to be difficulty along the way. But how did he run the race? With joy in his heart. Now, that's an oxymoron. How do we run where there's pain and sorrow and where hearts are filled with joy? The same way the pregnant mother who labors terribly with the birth pangs of the child who is excited at some moment amidst when the pain is at its worth worse to be able to welcome into the world their new child 
who for the joy set before them endure such great difficulty. That's what we do. Though it is hard, though we want to give up at times, we run with perseverance because we know, listen to me, brothers and sisters, the end is way better than the race itself. And I cannot tell you how awesome heaven and how awesome being with our Lord and Savior will be. So keep running and keep running with perseverance because at the end of it all, it will be worth it. I learned a number today, 21% of people who start a marathon never finish. And I will tell you that number is even higher for those who say they start the Christian faith and the Christian race and get out. So maybe today you've never started that race. Maybe today you thought you had started it but kind of gave up on it. I want you to know that every day is a new opportunity for you to bow the knee to Jesus and to get in the race and run it with all your heart. Jesus says that once we do that, he is faithful to see us bring it to completion. And he says in the end, it will all be worth it. God wants you and I to be a hero just as these men and women were. But in order to be a hero to the next generation, we have to run this race with endurance. Will you? Will you run it to the best of your ability, looking to Jesus every step of the way?